And it's Jamison Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wente Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery and California's first family of Chardonnay. Visit them online at wentevineyards.com. And we'll start this episode of Wine Without Worry by sampling a wine. Not too shocking, but uh, this wine happens to have been open for over a year. And it's a Merceau, which is where some of the finest Chardonnay in the world comes from in Burgundy. And I'm just going to taste this now. Uh, I have to say, I normally would never touch a wine that's been opened for more than a few days. I value uh, freshness. So this is, this is I'm, a little, I'm a little nervous, a little shocked. I, I have worry, although the show is wine without worry. Uh, okay, so this uh, Merceau that has been open for uh, well over a year is um, fresh. Uh, it has great acidity. Uh, it's delicious. Uh, it tastes like it was uh, open quite recently. And um, if you're wondering, like I am, how is this possible, uh, I have someone sitting next to me who can tell you. It's Greg Lambrecht. He's the inventor and founder of Corvin, which is a pretty amazing product that uh, Greg is going to explain to me what it is and how it works and actually give me a little demonstration while I'm here. Uh, Greg, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, what is the Corvin and how does it work? Corvin is uh, something I came up with many years ago to solve a problem that I had uh, when my wife uh, became pregnant. She stopped drinking, and uh, I realized I wanted a great glass of wine, or maybe two, but from two different bottles. Uh, and I, as soon as I pulled the cork, the wine that was uh, on the other side that I hadn't yet consumed was going to start oxidizing. Uh, so I work in medicine, and I've worked on all sorts of different types of products, but some of them involve needles. Uh, and so what I did was I developed a product that allows me to pour wine from the bottle without removing the cork. Uh, cork is the best tested wine preservation system we've ever developed. Uh, it can keep wine fresh for a hundred years uh, or free of oxygen. Uh, and I realized if I could leave the cork in place and get past it and pour what I like, uh, then I could take a glass, put it back on my shelf and have it again in a year, two years, five years, whenever it is that I wanted another glass from that bottle. I'm, I'm totally flabbergasted right now. I'm a little uh, lost for words. I mean, this, this wine, so this wine was opened uh, April 26th yeah, of, of, of 2013. Even if it was open April 26th, 2014, I'd be impressed, but I'm, I'm pretty astonished. Um, can you just, uh, you've got another bottle here, a bottle of uh, Vietti. Uh, Vietti is a great um, uh, producer in Piedmont. Is it a Barolo? It's a Barolo. It's a it's his lower end Barolo Castiglione, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Sort of the secret of Vietti is that all of his wines are spectacular, so it really doesn't matter. That's true. Which the Arnaise, one? The, the white, the Barbera, the Dolcetto. It's all good. He's an awesome maker. So this is the 2008, and this is also opened the same day, on okay. April 26th of 2013, by the same guy, a guy named Sandy Block. Yeah. So go ahead and if you could just describe uh, how it works and just kind of sure. give me a, a demo because so, it's a pretty interesting looking. Uh, gadget. There's a couple of key components to it. It's a little handheld device. It's about the size of a rabbit cork pole. Uh, it's got a needle that goes through the cork. It's a special non-coring needle I developed specifically for cork. It can pierce the cork, travel through it without doing damage to the cork that would stop it from resealing when the needle's removed. So I've got a, a clamp that attaches the whole system to the top of the bottle. Uh, there's a needle that is going to go through the cork. There's a compressed argon capsule. Argon is a gas that I use to displace the wine. Uh, argon's completely inert. It's one of the noble gases. It doesn't react with anything. Uh, they use it in the wine industry. 
uh, I went through a bunch of different gases to find argon. Argon wound up being the best. And that's going to displace the wine from the bottle. Uh, I push the needle through the cork, tip the bottle sideways, press a trigger that pressurizes the bottle with the argon, let go of the trigger, and wine comes out. Uh, and I can pour as much or as little as I like. You can pour a glass, a taste, you can empty the bottle uh, if you wanted to. When you're done pouring, I tip the bottle upright, and that allows the extra argon to come out. Remove the needle, and the cork reseals. Cork is the most elastic, natural solid we've ever found. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just exploit its properties of elasticity to allow it to open up, to allow the needle to go by, and to reseal when the needle's removed. So you could, like, I'm gonna, actually going to grab this Barolo and drink it, but um, uh, you could feasibly, like, I could enjoy this bottle, like, a glass a night, like, one glass, like, every three months. And yep. that, that last glass, like this one from, you know, 20, 2013, would be just as good. That was, a, that was my goal. I wanted there to be no hesitation between me and a great glass of wine. And I found that I wasn't pulling corks and wasn't tasting the wines because, you know, they, it was not a special enough night or I didn't have enough people over right. or whatever the excuse was. Uh, I realized what I wanted was a wine bar in my house. I wanted to be able to taste five, six different wines, even like half glasses of them, and learn about, say, for example, you could do a horizontal of Barolo. You could do four or five different producers from the same year and really learn something about wine in your own home. And I was being stopped from doing that because of the way that you have to remove the cork to pour. Mm -hmm. And I should say thank you for bringing Merceau and Barolo. You really, <laughs> you really came correct with the wines. Uh, they're both lovely. Um, what about, did you anticipate, uh, re, you know, wine is a very traditional thing, talking about cork. Did you anticipate um, resistance from people, like, I don't know, the technophobe side of wine folks, or how has is, how is the acceptance of it been? It's a, it's a good question. I think I anticipated more uh, fear about this. First of all, when I invented it, I just thought it was my problem. Right. I had no idea that it was a company. I spent 11 years just doing it for myself before I started the company. I didn't, I didn't realize there was such a broad need. Uh, we launched in 2013, and it took off much faster than I would have thought. So my expectation of resistance was much greater than what we actually saw. Uh, and it's surprising where the resistance comes from. I mean, and it, 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 there's almost none in California. They snapped it up very quickly, mm -hmm. and the, the producers were really receptive. And restaurants were really great. I think, you know, one of the, the key things that made us successful in overcoming that resistance is we started with sort of the, the most critical people in the wine industry, the wine producers themselves. We introduced the technology to them and asked them, how could we integrate into this world that you're creating? We're just a tool that's used to pour the wine. And I think involving them early on really, really helped. Uh, that and also restaurants and wine bars, really great places like here in Seattle. Uh, and also in New York City at 11 Madison Park and uh, out in California at Acarello in, in uh, San Francisco. We tried to bring in the, the people, the sommelier community very early on uh, and they helped us. They really helped to sort of co-promote us and for them they're able to now serve any wine they want by the glass either at the vineyard or at a wine bar or at a restaurant, it really changes the way they can do business. Yeah, I think that's where it's really impacted. I see, I've interviewed sommeliers all across the country and I've looked at their wine lists and they're pouring things like they could pour, like for example, what we're enjoying right now, they can pour a Barolo by the glass instead of just, uh, let's say I opened a Barolo and I was like, oh, I'm gonna offer this as a glass pour and I sold one or two glasses and then no one else wanted to 
buy it for days and I was, you know, screwed. I would, you know, I'd pour it down the sink or whatever. So I think that is when people can just be like, you know what, if I sell, I mean, obviously they'd like to sell as much as possible, but you could sell a glass a day or offer something really, I mean, you could offer any wine under the sun and pour it by the glass and not worry about, you know, everyone's fear with glass pours is, you know, pouring it down the drain. I think, I think it's that my goal, my dream was to open up the great cellars to tasting and by the glass, both at home and in uh, restaurants and wine bars. Uh, there are a couple of things that go wrong when you're at a restaurant and you order a glass and it's oxidized. Mm -hmm. That producer, whoever made that wine suffers because you know maybe the, the consumer doesn't know that it's actually oxidized and it's bad. The restaurant suffers because they're serving a bad glass of wine and delivering a bad experience to somebody. And the consumer suffers because they don't actually get to taste what that wine really is supposed to taste like and they don't learn and don't enjoy it. Uh, and to be at a place like we are right now, Barrel Thief, I'm looking at their list, I'm going to taste across all this stuff. Uh, and you can, as a, as a consumer, you can learn so much more at a restaurant or a wine bar that's got a list like this, uh, where you could do horizontals of Italian wines or uh, mini verticals across a couple of different, or see a grape that's grown uh, in Spain, in France, and in Washington State. Same grape, same year, and really get to see what terroir does. So great. Let's talk about your wine background. What, uh, like, how did you get uh, in so interested in wine that you, I mean, were led to work on, you know, for a decade on the Coravin? I mean, what, when did you, when did the wine bug bite you? I, uh, <laughs> before it was legal, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> I, uh, I went on a tour of Napa with some friends uh, and actually had the very first vintage of Peju uh, uh -huh. Cabernet, uh, and I was a young, young man. Raised by Germans and Austrians, we did not drink uh, wine at home. Uh, schnapps was uh -huh. the, what, my, what my parents drank, and not much of it. Uh, and I remember tasting that first glass and going, wow, you know, this is really a spectacular thing. And I, I was so enthralled, I wound up having a long, I bored, I bored the poor person who was behind the counter asking them all questions. Uh, I went into physics and then into medicine, but all along uh, my career, I, you know, you taste wines, you're like, wow, that's spectacular. Uh, and then it's very unique to the place. I work all over the world, and in particular in Europe. Uh, so I got to taste some great wines as I went along. Somebody handed me, uh, everybody has that bottle you remember. Somebody mm -hmm. gave me a 1990 Chave Hermitage. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember opening it and tasting it, uh, and it's just transformative. Mm -hmm. uh, it was nothing like a grape. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't taste like fruit at all. It didn't, you would never guess if you, if you didn't know that there was a grape involved in the production of what that is. Uh, but it's spectacular. And I think that, that's the wine where I was like, I know that this is going to be a part of my life. People get passionate about wine. Mm -hmm. yeah, and rightfully absolutely. so, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, if you're not passionate about it, you're probably in the wrong business. Yeah. yeah, and it's the variety, and it's the complexity, and it's the changing year by year, and it's the changing all over the world. It is, it's, uh, it's infinite variety is what still has me hooked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And what, so you're going to be, I don't know if you've traveled, we were talking earlier that you're, you're going to travel to Europe with the Coravin. Um, have you, are you, have you heard about, is it being used internationally? Are you getting feedback on that? Or is that something where that's your kind of mission to spread the word across Europe and take over the world maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely want to get it into the hands of whoever really likes uh, and enjoys wine and is mm -hmm. passionate about wine. And that is a global business. I mean, mm -hmm. This is one of those things where it's the same need everywhere. Uh, so in the, the Europeans started to pick it up on their own. They heard about it, they flew into New York, they saw it, they bought one, they flew back. 
Uh, and we had about 15% of our sales uh, going overseas oh, wow. uh, without advertising there or having a language, you know, any languages other than English, American English is mm -hmm. the British department, right. uh, on our website. So they sort of had a pull. Uh, I've spent since October uh, a lot of time and I also want to make sure that we, we went to France and we went to Italy uh, and we're, we go to Spain and to Germany and to the producers there because there you talked about resistance earlier. Yeah. Uh, they, these are the this is the old school, right? Mm -hmm. they, these are the people that are responsible for you know modern wine, uh, and we you know, really and historic wine. I really want to make sure that they were aware of us, uh, and they've been very receptive, very different. You learn a lot about culture mm -hmm. uh, when you're there. The Burgundians are farmers, and they're like, great, a new tool, fantastic. Uh -huh. uh, the Bordelais are business people, right? And like, how does this affect the sale of my wine? Uh -huh. Am I going to sell more or am I going to sell less? Yeah. Right, uh, the guys in Italy are like Napa Valley. They're mm -hmm. creative and passionate, and enthusiastic, and accepting. And even though their families go back ten centuries, mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a beautiful world in wine. Yeah, absolutely. And then one of the things I want to address is that um, when you're pouring the wines for me, you have a, a sleeve on that. And I know um, earlier this year there was a. Uh, recall to repair. There are a couple uh, issues with people having bottles uh, breaking, and we just wanted to talk about that and what the source of that that you found was. Sure. Uh, it was a really big surprise to me when the first bottle break was reported. Uh, I'd been using this since 1999, some version of it, uh, and I'd never seen a bottle break. Uh, and so I, I, I had no idea where it was coming from, but luckily we have a really good relationship with our customers. And so they sent the bottles back, mm -hmm. we asked, and they sent the Corbins to us. Uh, we tested the Corbin. Corbin is pressure limited. It won't deliver more than one and a half atmospheres. It's, well, it's 24 PSI is where, where we set it. A bottle can take around 10 atmospheres, uh, so much more than what we put into it. So the Corbins that they sent back were working fine. Uh, we took the glass and we sent it off to a glass expert. There's mm -hmm. actually a field called glass forensics. Oh, wow. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. They're CSI, in California. Glass, exactly. Glass forensics. It's really, that's what I expected. You know, a <laughs> yeah. little dust. Yeah. yeah. That having on it. They can actually tell the point of origin uh, of the crack, the energy of the crack, mm -hmm. uh, and how it progressed around the bottle. So what we got back were bottles where the bottom fell off or popped off or a piece of the shoulder came off. Mm -hmm. And in one case, a magnum broke into four pieces. And we, we uh, we asked him what's going on. He said, these bottles have been dropped, dropped, cracked, or crushed. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they get cracked, uh, their ability to resist pressure drops. And then somebody uses the Corbin on it, and the bottom will come off, right. which is where it normally drops. Mm -hmm. uh, or a shoulder on a Bordeaux bottle. Mm -hmm. uh, that also hits the ground, uh, and it'll crack there. And we had uh, one bottle that had a very clear manufacturing defect, a big piece of unmelted glass, mm -hmm. uh, where the corner popped off. Uh, so we basically said, you know what, um, we don't want anybody getting cut by glass. It's about one in every 50,000 or fewer bottles that breaks, right. uh, which is why I hadn't seen it. Mm -hmm. I've done like two or 3,000 bottles. Right. Uh, but we've sold around 50,000 of these. And if they're used every day, you're going to run into these things. So we decided that we would do our own recall. We, we self-announced to the Consumer Product Safety Commission here in the U.S. and also to the European Union. We told them that we had this problem. And we said, you know what? We think we can solve it with a simple sleeve that covers the bottle so that if it breaks. So we tell people, every, uh, everyone, to look at the bottle, look for big cracks and chips. Mm -hmm. uh, if you see one, don't use it. Uh, and always use uh, the sleeve because even if the bottle breaks, and we've tested it, and I'm pretty sure the CPSC tested it as well, um, then you're going to be fine. It's not going to cut anybody. So we sent out, we stopped sales in uh, end of May, beginning of June, did our self-recall, reported to the European Union, because we'd sold 15% overseas. 
uh, and also the U.S. And to their credit, we went through the CPSC in 20 days. Mm -hmm. uh, and they said, no, this solution works. Great. Go ahead. Great. Uh, the European Union came back and said, the risk is so low, you don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, but go ahead if you like. Right. And um, one of the things, I mean, when you think about the, um, the Corbin as an invention, and I think of inventors and their, and their minds, that they're a, a restless mind. They're always thinking of other things. So are you working on um, other ideas that you can discuss or, uh, or, or hint at? Stop. Uh, yeah, I, we're filing patents on a lot of stuff. Uh, it it's it's, opens up a lot of opportunities. But it, I try to answer, I always start invention with a need. What's the problem that somebody wants solved? Uh, and people have come up to me and said, does it work with champagne? Mm -hmm. Get this to work with champagne. Um, hard. It's very hard <laughs> to yeah. get it to work with champagne. Yeah. But I'm working on it. Um, people asked, uh, uh, does it work with screw tops? And I love a lot of wines that are under screw top. So I'm actually going to do a blind taste testing in a couple of weeks with something that's out six and nine months uh, using Coravin on screw tops. And I can't talk about how yet. Right. You won't have to buy a new Coravin. Uh-huh. Um, uh -oh. And yeah, it's a good thing. And then yeah. I want to work on stuff for restaurants. My dream is that it's easier and faster to access with Coravin than to remove the cork and pour. Mm -hmm. uh, we're almost there, but we're not there yet. So I want it to be totally simple to use. You put it on the bottle, push down, grab the bottle, tip it sideways, mm -hmm. it pours itself. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's sort of my end game for, mm -hmm. for Coravin. So expanding its use getting it all over the world, using it with screw tops, and, and if I can get it to champagne, and then making it as simple as possible. Well, it's a really exciting development. Um, actually, you know what, for, um, I mean, we wrote about it in Grape Collective, where I, I'm an editor, grapecollective.com. Uh, just, it's, you know, we say a lot of things like revolutionize and, you know, innovative and things like that. People throw those words around a lot. But as far as what it can do for a buy the, especially for a buy the glass program or like, or just you at home uh, with your wine cellar, just being able to sample things and try things and get creative. And like you said, really learn. I mean, it can be an, also an educational tool and not just a business tool to, yeah. to sample, uh, you know, uh, verticals of vintages you may own or horizontals or, uh, or just it might save your sanity when you have uh, like one bottle of something that you carry back from somewhere and you're freaking out over opening it and yeah. then you open it and it's like uh, you waited too long or uh, you know you, you blew the moment or something like that but you know you hear something where you can uh, just like well, I'm gonna try a little sample a little bit and then you can be like eh, this needs a little more time or I'll come back to it later things like that so um, so I'm excited about it uh, I'm excited to be here at the barrel thief and sample uh, a few more wines and thank you so much for your time on the show today Greg oh thank you it's great to be here sharing some wine yeah thank you <laughs> and we're back at the Barrel Thief at the corner of Evanston and 35th in Fremont the center of the universe at least in Seattle and uh, if you don't know where 35th and Evanston is we're also right by the Rocket and we're at the Barrel Thief which is a Extremely cozy wine bar. There are plenty of couches, bar seating. And one thing I really noticed is there is a lot of wines by the glass. There's, uh, I think, like 150. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to the owner, Christopher, is to get a sense of how he decided to go with 150 wines and why the Corvin has helped him uh, be able to do so without pouring a lot of things down the drain. Christopher, talk about uh, your philosophy of wines by the glass and how the Corvin plays into that. Yeah, thanks. Um, our philosophy here really is that this is a place that's more than a place to get eating, drink, and wine and food. It's a place for people to learn, uh, to discover, to explore. And to that end, uh, we have to offer a lot of options. I mean, we have classes, workshops, tastings, flights. 
but in the end, what you need is uh, something that represents the diversity of wine. And wine is almost infinite in its diversity. So an instrumental part of our program is the capability to pour so many wines by the glass from all over the world, from different places, different times, different grapes, different styles. And so uh, the Corvin is something which really we've based our entire wine program on. And it lets us offer about 160 to 170 wines by the glass. And the reason to do this is not just from a business perspective that I think it gives us an opportunity to have something that not a lot of other bars and restaurants have, but for me, fundamentally, it's as a wine consumer, it's what I want. You know, when you walk into a place and they have 20 wines by the glass and a bottle list of 1,500 wines, those are 1,500 wines you're probably not gonna have. And you're gonna have the same 20 wines over and over again. And what I wanted as a consumer was, I wanna try them all. And so instead of having a huge bottle list and a dozen or so wines by the glass, we decided, let's take a plunge and do every single wine in the whole place by the glass. And really, the Corvin is the only thing that lets us do that. You know, something I kind of dreamed about for a while, I had lots of ideas, but this is the first technology that's come along that's really allowed us to kind of make our dream come true, and that's a dream we can kind of pass on to the consumer. So what are a couple uh, wines by the glass that you have right now that you really are excited about or geeky about or like you'd want people to know, hey, this is some really cool stuff that we're doing? Yeah, I think part of it is we try and keep about 10 to 20% of the wine list as pretty eclectic things you're not normally going to find by the glass. So in addition to all the major wine regions, we have wines from Lebanon, we have wines from Israel, we have uh, wines from that are older that you wouldn't normally find by the glass. We have a 1991 Rioja, a white Rioja made out of Vieira. We have uh, some Bordeaux that's 15 years old. And it just it gives us the diversity of wine so that we can have some expected wines and some unexpected wines. And especially when you combine this kind of a wine list with flights, it means that people who might not take the plunge and buy a bottle or even a whole glass of something that's kind of weird and different, they're willing to do a taste. And they might do a flight with two wines they're familiar with and staff will kind of push them to try something that's a little different, a little off the beaten path, and it can be very eye-opening for people. I think it's the only way that people are going to get to try certain kinds of wines. Yeah, absolutely. There's sort of like a, uh, a democratic wine ethos, I think, behind all of what you're saying, the philosophy at the Barrel Thief. It's very cool. Yeah, and the other really important thing is that we've been able to pour wines for lower price because of it. So essentially, we don't pour any wine down the drain. And I would say before we had the Corvin, um, I'd estimate that 15 to 20 percent of wine uh, is too old to pour when you're just popping corks, hoping you're going through the wine in a couple of days, but you're not. So essentially what we're doing is we're not wasting any wine, and that's let us have a heck of a lot of wine at $8 a glass that otherwise we'd be pouring for a little bit more. So I think really the consumer appreciates that as much as the diversity. Great. Well, thanks for the perspective on a small business in the Corvin, Christopher. Uh, you can check out The Barrel Thief in Fremont at beefthief.com. A lot easier to remember in type, too. So thanks, Christopher, for sharing uh, your experience in your wine bar. Thanks so much.